Hello, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fintech Cafe. Today is episode 15, and we're joined by Brett Allred, who is the Chief Product Officer of MX. Fintech Cafe is a live show that takes place on Clubhouse every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. You are listening to the recording of the show that took place, and we're very grateful that you're tuning in on a podcasting platform. In a disclosure, Monisha and I, we have our full-time jobs and our employer is not associated with Fintech Cafe. We're not endorsing any products. We're not providing any investment advice either. What we are trying to do is cultivate a community of thought leadership within Fintech so we all can be better informed about all that's happening around us. With that, let's get started. We'll start with our introductions. I'll go first. My name is Ambika Sharma. I started the show about 15 weeks ago. Munisha and I, we do this as a hobby, as I mentioned. I personally have been involved within the fintech space for almost a decade. I have worked within financial services in the United States, Europe, and Latin America. With that, I'll hand it over to my co-host, Munisha Chakrapani, for her introduction. Thank you, Ambika. Good evening, everyone joining on the side of the country. I am Monisha. I work at US Bank and in the product management space. MX is a company that I've been watching closely through the last couple of years. So very excited to learn more. Brett, thank you for joining us on stage. And with that, I think we will kick this off. To get things started, Brett, I wanted to just kind of get a better sense for your journey to a chief product officer at disruptive innovator like MX and also notice that you also have a background in fintech so we'd love to hear what got you to your current role. Yeah sure well first of all thank you for having me it's been exciting to come and do this is my first clubhouse event so this is this is really cool. A little bit about myself so I'm from Utah I grew up in a little town called Orem and I, when, when it comes to my journey, I think I was pretty fortunate uh, early on to find my passion. When I was 11 years old, I remember my dad coming home with this brand new computer that had Windows 3.1 loaded on it. And he, he sat it down, he set it up, and it was like love at first sight. I, I just really fell in love with, with computers, with computation, and and. It, it was just this whole beautiful thing. And, and I, I got my first job actually when I was 17 years old doing tech work. It was at a, a company here in Utah called Key Labs, really right in the heart of the dot-com heyday. And I was fixing computers, doing networks, et cetera. And I remember it was late 1999 that Key Labs was acquired by Exodus Communications for about $43 million. And in today's crazy tech market and acquisitions that probably doesn't sound like much but in late 1999 that was that was massive and so it was it was a really cool start to being in quite a long time ago but then also at the same time 18 months later the dot com bubble crashed and exodus went bankrupt and everybody was out of a job so i felt like i really got to ride the whole wave of, of the dot com era and and since then my my journey and really my career has has been somewhat of a, a mix of entrepreneurial endeavors combined with software and technology, which led me to a, a time about eight years ago, I was meeting with a mentor of mine, JT Wong, who was the CTO of Vivint Smart Home. And we were talking about the future and, and maybe what was next for me in my career. And he introduced me to this little company in Provo called Money Desktop. And he said, these guys have just started. You may want to go look at their 
look at their technology, meet their founders. Uh, they've got a really smart CTO that I think you would like. And so long story short, he introduced me, Brandon DeWitt, who is the CTO of MX. And I got to know Brandon and started working at, well, sorry, Money Desktop at the time. So I started working at, at Money Desktop. That was my introduction. And about a year year and a half into my, my journey with Money Desktop, I actually got a call from a venture capitalist group that said, hey, we want you to come run a, a different startup company. So I actually left Money Desktop for about four years, ran this startup. We, we grew it from about 10 people to 115 people and then sold it. And after that, after that acquisition, Brandon and Ryan called me back up from MX and said, hey, what are you doing next? And we had a, you know, a lot of great discussions and they invited me to come back and be the chief product officer at MX. So I've been at MX for three years now as the chief product officer and I've been loving it. That's great. I did not know that part about money desktop. So thanks for sharing. So segueing into MX, you're sort of landing there. Could you kind of give the audience a little flavor of what MX does, where the founder story. It sounds like you were part of it right from the start. So would love to hear your version of uh, how it all began. Yeah, sure. So MX was founded back in 2010 under the name of Money Desktop. Ryan Caldwell was the founder. And really the idea back then was, you know, we the company was built on this premise that financial data was not being properly utilized by financial institutions. And that that one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful data set in the world is transactional data, like looking, how, looking at how consumers spend their money and where their money comes from is, is really, really powerful. And so the company was founded on this idea that if financial data could be leveraged, it could really be used to power a next era of innovation, both in financial services technology, but also in banking technology. And he, you know, at the time had foreseen the shift that as data becomes more utilized uh, by, you know, what we now call fintech companies and uh, financial institutions, that there would be this massive increase in choice, in consumer choice, and a decrease in switching costs. And so somebody could switch from bank to bank to bank or from app to app to app very quickly because of, of this expansion of the utilization of data. And uh, Brandon DeWitt, on the other hand, he had started a company called MyJibe about the same time. And uh, these two had met up, Ryan and Brandon met up, joined forces together, MyJibe and Money Desktop, and then eventually became uh, what is now called MX. And since then, we've really been pushing on this shift in banking from that original vision of, of data being the center of some massive change and some massive innovation that will be happening. And, and now, you know, 10 years, 11 years later is happening in the, in the industry. Great. Thank you. So it sounds like the initial vision kind of shifted to where it is today. So could you, for the audience and those not as familiar with the core business of MX, like how would you lay it out in introducing the firm? Yeah, so for me, being the chief product officer, I generally think about it in the terms of products. And, and so there's, we have a lot of different products that we offer to both financial institutions and to fintech companies, but you can categorize them in three 
major areas. So the first would be what I think of as data connectivity. There, there are all kinds of use cases in which people need to share data for their business use case. So imagine, you know, I'm assuming most people on the call have a bank account and they probably had a mortgage. And when you go to get that mortgage, one of the first things that you're asked for is to give some banking statements, right? Give us three months of banking statements or whatever. So you go on the, log on to your bank, download some PDF statements, or maybe you take some pictures of what was mailed to you. You get those off to your mortgage company. Well, the idea of connectivity is saying we, we should be able to connect the mortgage company with the bank. And so there can be a computer to computer interaction or sharing of that data, which happens in an instant, not through downloading and sharing, et cetera. So that's the first real like set of technologies or set of products that we have, which is connecting financial data from, from company to company. The, the second major pillar of what we do is data enhancement. We've learned that when, when that data is shared, most of the time transactional data is pretty messy. So imagine you know, if you've had the experience where you've pulled up your credit card statement or your, your banking statement and you see some transaction and you just have no idea what it is. You can't, you know, either that's because it's just some obscure transaction statement or maybe it's some like unintelligible string of characters you just have no idea and when the computer gets that data it's really hard to understand as well so the data enhancement is all about taking that that transaction description and cleaning it up so instead of being garbled you know oh that was actually gas from the chevron gas station on 800 south in salt lake city okay now i recognize what that is and off of data enhancement, there's all kinds of use cases and things that we can do when we enhance the data. And that's the second pillar. And then the third pillar for us is all about money experiences and how consumers experience their money. What are, what are the applications, et cetera? So we build a, a mobile banking application, which is the primary mobile banking application for institutions like Boeing Employees Credit Union, as an example, or First Hawaiian Bank, you know, the list goes on and on. But we do have a mobile banking. I think about it as mobile banking experience. And then we also have some online experiences that go to supplement online banking systems from lots of different uh, online banking providers. So that's a lot of information, but those three categories really connect uh, data connectivity, data enhancement, and then money experiences are how we think about our products and we think about our business. That's very helpful. Thank you, Brad. I know usually we talk to, you know, direct to consumer companies, and this is a very foundational setup that you're doing. So I think that's super helpful. I'm going to pass it back to Ambika to get into some product questions. Ambika. Sure. Thank you, Manisha. So your first pillar, breadth connectivity, is that what I should understand as open banking? Yeah. So, so open banking is a pretty large, it's a large concept, but open banking plays into you know, even that initial example I gave of a mortgage company being able to pull data from a financial institution so that they can underwrite a loan or, you know, issue credit or something. Open banking definitely ties into our connectivity pillar, but we also think about the open banking experience. So we do have some user interfaces and some experience products that help assist a user in connecting to their financial institution and sharing that data with their fintech company of choice. 
Right. Okay. So talking of open banking, we have to talk about the latest news. Uh, earlier this month, President Biden signed an executive order asking CFPB to issue rules giving consumers full control of their financial data and to make it easier for them to switch lenders. So could you talk to us about the significance of this news for your space, open banking space, for MX and fintech space overall? Could you just help us understand why this is important? Yeah. So one, I mean, this is, to us, this is massive, right? And we we definitely applaud the Biden administration for pushing this and and showing their support for open banking. So when we say open banking, not everybody understands what that is. And, and sometimes it's not you're not sure of why that even matters. Going back to this, I, like a fundamental idea is the data that you have at your financial institution, me, you, meaning you're like your account number, your routing number all of your transactions, who owns that data and who has access to that data? And that's like a, that's a big question. And that's a big topic for debate. And what's happening right now is that there are all of these use cases that are springing up where a company like a mortgage company, like I said before, could use, utilize that data to give you a loan or to give you credit. But there's other companies that are utilizing that data, maybe to help you manage your money like budgeting applications and, and personal financial management tools is, is a big one. And there's this whole fintech industry that's, that's, that's finding great ways to use your financial data to benefit you. The problem is the data is not open. There's not really a good way to go and get it. And so what we're having to do, you know, historically is like I mentioned earlier, you download PDF statements and you share them or, you know, what if you've ever had the experience of, of maybe you wanted a budgeting application and you log into the budgeting application, you tell them that you bank at Chase, and then the first thing they ask you for is your username and your password to your bank. And you type that in and you give that to them. Now you've shared your banking credentials with a third party and they go in and they log in on your behalf. And they'll go and they'll scrape the data or they'll pull the data from the online banking system. And that's not very secure, right? Sharing those credentials because you're giving, you're, you're giving them access to the complete online banking system where open banking is more of like, you know, it can be likened to the, if you've ever had a car that has a valet key, you know, you give the valet key to the valet driver and you don't give them the full key. So they can still drive the car, but they can only, you know, stay in first gear. It can't go over 10 miles an hour. It can't go like more than a mile from your location. There's all of these restrictions on what they can do with your, your vehicle. Open banking is similar where I can say, I want to give a third party application access to my data, but it has all of these restrictions on it, but they can get it easily. They can get it fast. They can get it quick. And so open banking really is all about opening up the data. And historically in the United States, we haven't had it open. So to see the government coming in and saying, look, we need to open up the data. We need to drive competition. We, competition is good for the American consumer. And to see that support is, is, is really great. I mean, we could go to, in far more detail than that, you know, and happy to if, if you would like. But that's maybe a highlight of open banking and just the fact that they're pushing it and, and showing their support. Hopefully that will lead to to change and, and proper regulation that needs to be put in place and, and really the execution of Dodd-Frank 1033 and the rules there 
I think will be really important. Right. So I used to live in Europe and there they already, the open banking is status quo and it's, it was mandated by, by regulators. So it wasn't like industry first, it was more regulation first. And then banks had to open up, they had to share data with other banks and that permitted me, for example, who, you know, wasn't a European citizen, I could then get loans easier from different financial institutions because I could show my cash flow as opposed to uh, a credit score that wasn't well established. So that was an interesting use case I found in Europe. And I'm hoping that the United States, that becomes more of a norm as well, where we don't rely so much on credit score, but instead cash flow, for example. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, like, it's a, it's a good example. And I think naturally that we, we would like to see industry first happen. And, and I think we've, we've been pushing that companies have been pushing that really open up and, and, but we haven't seen the industry respond as quickly as I think we would, we would like. And so that's when, you know, sometimes regulation needs to come in and, and there are some, there are some pretty heated topics when it comes to this. And so really understanding what needs to happen and, and get a good debate going is, is really critical. And I think if we debate the important issues in life, we can come out with good solutions and, and hopefully do what's right for the consumer and what's in their best interest, but then also for the, the banking industry as a whole, both the financial institution and the fintech companies. But I, this, is, this is a really Im- impactful area and I think is a, a major source of disruption that's going to happen over the next you know, five, 10 years. Right. So data sharing that talks, you know, that prompts the question around data security, which is a big concern. Tell us about your views and how MX tries to do the right thing for the customer when it comes to data security. Yeah. So security, I mean, this, this is paramount, right? And I, I think some, sometimes people, they'll ask us, like, is open banking, are you sure this is secure? You know, we're sending financial data all around and, and how, do we enable, how do we ensure that uh, we're protecting the security of the user? which in my mind, open banking is far more secure than some of the current methods that are being used, i.e. I'm sharing my credentials with somebody and then they are just logging in and I'm trusting them that they don't like transfer money out of my account, but I don't know for sure. You know, I'm just, it, it really runs on the trust model where with open banking, because we're going to computer to computer, we can make we we can make sure that we know who is authorized who access is authorized to that they have been given uh, explicit permission by the user and by the financial institution to access that data that that data is only being used for the intended purpose that the user asked for it uh, to be used so an ex- you talked a little bit about you know looking at your cash flow to get a loan as opposed to a credit score well that's a great use case and maybe you want your data used that way, but you don't want your data to be used to market to you. And so permissioned use of the data is really critical. You don't get that when you just blanket hand someone the keys to the kingdom, if you will. And so like, we think that it's, it's really critical to, to advocate for the consumer to make sure the data is shared in a very secure way and in a way that is consumer permissioned. We, we want the, cus- the consumer to know how their data is going to be used and for what purpose and that at any time they can revoke that access if they want. And uh, those are some of the key principles that we think of when it comes to security. Sure. We can have a whole conversation just on this, I feel. 
So you are a chief product officer of MX and we have lots of product managers in the audience. So I have to ask you this. And that is you are as an as MX, you're in the space of, let's say, new frontiers of finance. So you are responsible for innovating. How do you create a culture as a CPO? How do you create a culture that breeds innovation? Oh, that's a good one. How do we create a culture that breeds innovation? So if you were to come to the MX offices and attend one of our product meetings or, or be around the product team and the engineering team long enough, you would hear me use this phrase that all I expect of myself and all I expect of our team is that we make measurable progress in reasonable time. And it's a, it's a very powerful phrase because first of all, we think about one, we need to make progress. What are we doing to pro help progress mankind? And our mission, which is in to empower the world to be financially strong, how are we making progress there? And it's not just any type of progress. We need to make measurable progress. So how are we measuring the progress that we're making? And then how are we doing that in a reasonable amount of time? Some projects, a, a reasonable amount of time is 24 hours, right? Not maybe on the... the the one end and some projects, it, it takes a lot longer. But when somebody comes and says, I've got a five-year project, that's probably not reasonable, right? And so it goes to one of our values of iterative innovation. We really try to iterate quickly and, and start at the most basic level. If, if you have an idea, like I think ideas are going to come from everyone. I, I don't think that, that leadership of a company has a monopoly on good ideas. And if you can foster a culture where ideas can be uh, shared with anybody and they don't have to be shared in a way that's like, here's this big formal presentation that I, I put hundreds of hours into and then it's just going to get turned down, but that somebody on our team can come to me or, or one of our other executives or another engineer and like sketch something out on a whiteboard and start to get feedback. And that first iteration is just that you know, quote back of the napkin sketch, right? And we, we know lots of great ideas have come from things that were written on the back of a napkin. Now, I, I think the better ideas come from things that are written on a whiteboard, but, you know, that's me. But I, I, that, that's two big things. And then this, this sounds a little cliche because a lot of people say this, and I, and I don't mean to be cliche, but as a, as, a, as a leader, what is your response to failure, like when somebody goes and tries to do something and they make a decision, how do you respond to that? And there's really two, two, there's two philosophies. This might get into more of like first principles thinking on this idea, but do you believe in centralized management versus distributed management? Do you believe in centralized computing versus distributed computing? Do you believe in centralized decision-making, distributed decision-making? And I think if we can distribute decision-making we can breed a, uh, and foster a culture of innovation because more people are making decisions and they don't feel like they have to escalate and elevate and only the, the top, you know, whatever echelons of the company can make a decision and innovate. And so I, th those are a couple of principles, you know, measurable progress, reasonable time, iterative innovation, and then distributed decision-making are just, a, and then how you respond to failure is, is a big part of making sure people feel safe and putting a, a crazy idea out there. So Brett, just kind of following along that did come across one of your podcasts, I think uh, around innovation during the pandemic. 
would love to hear either that as a use case or any other use case where that sketch on the napkin has evolved into something big, if you're able to share. Yeah, for sure. I'm assuming you're talking about the PPP yes. stuff that we did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in, inside of MX, we have a number of aphorisms that we use. And, and we like that approach because you can condense a, a phrase down into a concept and you can really remember it and you can repeat it. And it helps guide your action. So one of them we have internally is this idea of, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? And when the pandemic kicked off and the, the PPP funding was in there was, a, it was a really great program. The idea, I think, was, was really impactful to help small businesses keep people employed, even when they're having to shut down. And if you were following it really closely, what happened is all of this money was opened up to these small businesses, but the banks didn't have a way to process the loans fast enough to meet the demand for all the people that were applying. And uh, if you've ever had to apply for like an SBA loan, you you know the process. It takes a long time. It's very manual, a lot of paperwork, and and it's a very arduous task. And so what was happening is the government had said, let's get all this money out to small businesses and then in turn out to the people of the United States. But we couldn't process it fast enough. And so as we were seeing this problem, we started talking to some customers of ours and they were explaining what was going on. And that phrase came to us, if not me, then who, if not now, then when? And uh, Brandon DeWitt, our CTO, he called me up and he said, hey, here's the situation. I think we need to, I think we need to work on this and let's build an application and let's, let's go solve it. And, and so, you know, crazy enough, Brandon and I started coding on this and we started late at night, working all night, working all weekend. And in four days, we got the first version of this automated PPP loan submission application out and running in some of our partners' applications. And we just, we just, what we wanted to show, what we wanted to show is that we could help, you know, it wasn't out there to, you know, we didn't charge for it. Initially, we just, we just put it out there. We released it as open source software so anybody could take it. They could spin it up on Heroku. In fact, that's why we had the Heroku podcast because we used Heroku as the company to host it. And we, we just got it out there. And, and uh, I think when you focus on the like making a difference, then the byproduct of that could be success down the road. But the, the focus is, needs to be what are we doing to help? And it goes back to our mission, empower the world to be financially strong. And, and we, we just said, if, if here's an opportunity, let's just go do it. And we're going to, we're going to iterate and we're going to iterate. We got more people involved in the project over time and, and actually ended up funding, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of loans through this, this software that we created over time. But it's just an example of, of really having a philosophy, like a strong philosophy internally and having the right aphorisms. And that one, if not me, then who, if not now, then when really served us in this time because we're like, who else is going to do this? Like, we better just go do it. That's really fantastic to hear. I mean, I did write that down. <laughs> so I think I'm going to have to hold on that aphorism just for life in general. So thank you. And I, I mean, it sounds like it served your customers well, as well as the end consumers with the businesses, as we all know were in quite a pinch during the pandemic. So that's a great, a great story. Thanks for sharing. 
we are at 30 minutes into the hour and I do want to do a quick room reset for those who may have joined since we introduced the call. We do have Brett already joining us, the Chief Product Officer of MX, and we are now going to open the floor for questions. So we'd love to hear from the audience. Please use the raise hand button, which is at the bottom of the screen. If you'd like to, if you have a question for Brett, please also, you know, use the back channel and I, app, application. So that's that basically the paper plane that you see at the bottom right. Uh, you could send an, a question to Ambika or myself, and we'd be happy to post that to Brett as well in case you ha you're otherwise. Through automation, through machine learning, and through some other data enhancement technologies, learn to save money and start to build that saving discipline. And a lot of that comes from putting it on autopilot. So first, we think about that mission. Second, we still look at financial institutions and how they're utilizing data. And, you know, when you talk to the financial institution, they're, they're really about their efficiency ratio and, and how can they improve their efficiency ratio using data. So that's another big aspect for us. And we could get into the, the details of that. But to really, you know, kind of a long answer put short is we're investing very, very heavily in, in data science, uh, in machine learning, in, in AI and and when I think of AI, more like assisted intelligence, how can we really assist the consumer's intelligence with their money? And so you'll see an event that we're actually doing in September called the Money Experience Summit. We're going to be announcing new products and technologies that are driven by machine learning and data science. And then as well as a bunch of different products coming out next year that, that leverage data to help the consumer. And all of those are generally made available in a user interface format that you can deliver to the user also via an API. So for companies who just want the power of the data to in, for their own innovation, they can use it that way. Awesome. As a, as a, if I can have just a, a quick follow up to that, you know, as you guys are developing sort of that, you know, sort of, as you said, the, you know, hiring a chief data scientist and developing that muscle it is sort of going back, you know, and banks have always traditionally held that data. So is going is, is sort of offering those particular services to whether it's an incumbent or a new a neo bank is that something that you guys are sort of thinking about as well sort of as a value add to the service? Yep, absolutely. Thank you. So Brett, you just talked about the experience summits. I forgot to ask you that. Could you please tell us more about your money experience summit and anybody in the audience if they want to participate what how they can? Yeah, sure. So September 28th through September 30th, we'll be hosting our second annual Money Experience Summit. And it's the first time that we've done it in person. Last year, obviously with COVID, we did it virtually, but it will be held in Utah up at the Snowbird Mountain Resort. So if you want an excuse to come to Utah to get up in the mountains, come to an amazing place in Snowbird, this is your, this is your excuse. We've, there's a whole incredible lineup of speakers you know, headlining is uh, five-time NFL MVP and two-time Super Bowl champion Peyton Manning. We also have racing icon Mario Andretti that's going to be there and a whole massive lineup of, of business leaders from CEOs, CIOs, authors, chief product officers. I mean, you name it. They're going to be there for three days of just jam-packed information to talk about um, really thought-provoking discussions on the future of money and and where money is going. So, if you're if you're listening to this and you have any interest in coming, I, our, our marketing team sent me over a little thing. You can go to mx.com forward slash summit and use the code Clubhouse 100 and 
there's an offer, I think $100 off the registration, but it, it's going to be amazing. So if you're into fintech, if you're into great speakers, if you're into having a good time in the mountains, come join us at Snowbird. Wow, thank you. $100 off. I like it. Deidre, okay, let's go to you. Hi, welcome back. Deidre is a fan of the show and a friend. Thank you very much. Um, so my, you, you were just talking about experience, experiences, and my question to you is about the customer experience. When a product is pushed out as a MVP, often it is the customer experience that suffers. You use PPP as an example. I know that a lot of PPP experiences, I'm not talking about yours, but I know a lot of PPP experiences were, were really, they were really negative for, yep. for people trying to use them. They couldn't figure them out. There'll be people that'll try something that's released kind of bare bones. And because it is bare bones, they, they never visit it again. They never look at it again because they, they had such a negative experience the first time. I guess I'm curious what you would say to people like me that are worried about the, the customer experience and you, the, the fact, you know, people are being so, companies are being so agile that they're, pu they're pushing products out to innovate, excuse me, to iterate on them. But the regular public doesn't know that. You know, I was listening to a podcast just the other day and uh, the, the host was talking about how he thought the, the new Paramount Plus app was, was trash because there were so many basic things that were missing. And I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, with time, those things will probably be there, but there are gonna be some people that will never come back. So there was a question in there. I had to respond. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's really interesting when, when I think we, ha in human nature, it seems like there's, a, there's maybe the way that we do something and that, that becomes the culture. And then a new way comes out and oftentimes like the pendulum swings from one extreme to the other and it, it, it swings too far in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about, I'll use a different example than, than what you're using and, and tie it back. You think about historically like waterfall methodology for planning and we bid big design up front and all of these specifications and requirements and on and on and on. And then we hand those over and there's this big implementation period and that's the way that it's done. Then mm -hmm we get the agile manifesto coming out, we get these new ideas and some really good success stories of, you know, coming out of Washington DC and some government projects where they're using these agile methods and the pendulum swings over to, that means we don't have a plan. That means we <laughs> just are doing whatever we want to do that day. And we're just mm -hmm. testing and iterate and, and the pendulum swings too far. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the pendulum needs to swing back to like a middle ground. And there's a symbol that I, uh, that I, that I think about, I think symbols are actually really important in our culture and, and the way that we learn. But if you've ever seen the yin yang symbol where you've got the light and the dark, mm -hmm. sometimes you think about it, order and chaos, that mm -hmm. there's different ways to, to think about it. But in the middle, there's this little thin line that forms this, like this narrow path. That's kind of windy that represents kind of the balance in the middle. And I, and I think there's things that you've got to bring it back to mm -hmm. the balance in the middle when the pendulum has swung too far. And so MVPs, I, I, I'm with you. I think the idea of a minimum viable product came out as a way to test your product, get early market validation. There's the whole lean startup movement and a lot of the stuff coming out of, you know, Stanford with four steps to epiphany, et cetera. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden we swing way over to this MVP 
style and we're just putting out MVP products because that's what we think that we should do. And uh, referencing back to uh, Sean's reference to Steve Jobs about when, hey, they wanted to put out a product that was amazing. That was, that was when they launched it, it was beautiful. It was, you know, everything went into it. And so mm-hmm. it's the challenge is the culture. And, and my, my answer for you really is like, how do you bring it back to this, this principled center and I think it's really important if there's if there's one, if all the product managers could take one like anecdote away from this this whole presentation, it would to be to be a student, not a follower. There's mm-hmm. a lot of great ideas, methodologies, systems, et cetera, out there. And if you're a student of all of these ideas, it's really great. But don't be a disciple of one of them. Whatever you do, make sure it's the product of your own conclusion and your own culture and your own company and what you need to do with what's right for you. And that's just, that's an idea that is, has really served me well for my years in business that I'll mm-hmm. consume all of the data, all of the, the methodologies and the philosophies, but what I do and what we implement is a product of my own conclusion. And it's the way that we're going to do it. It's the MX way. It's not the Apple way. It's not the Amazon way. It's not the Netflix way. It's the MX way because that's what the MX culture needs. Well stated. It's a good answer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hello. Before we go to you, there is a question that came from the back channel. So a reminder to everyone, if you are in a noisy place or you don't feel comfortable, comfortable asking questions, you can send a question to me or Manisha using the back channel. There is an arrow or there is an airplane icon at the bottom right. You can use that to send me or Manisha your question. So one question came through. And Brett, this is from James Sontag. He's in the audience. He's a developer at Figure Technologies, which is a blockchain startup. So I'm just going to read it to you. The question's technical. And it reads, poking at your developer's side of the mind, how do you think the authentication side of open banking will work? Will there be a single sign-on? Does each individual bank need to integrate their own OAuth solution? Yeah, that's a good question. So what what I think you're going to see or what we're seeing is one, each each financial institution is going to integrate their own OAuth solution. And so they're going to basically have an API. There's going to be OAuth authentication onto it. Then a fintech company, let's say you're, you're building another budgeting application and you need to connect to thousands of financial institutions. You're not going to go and integrate into all of those APIs and manage that. You'll come to a company like MX. We'll be a central aggregator of all of those open banking connections We'll give you a widget, uh, which that you'll then install in the software. And then depending on what the user decides, if they go to Chase or Wells Fargo or B of A, whatever they choose, we'll reroute them to the authentication mechanism, the OAuth login prompt for that specific institution and then route them back. And so we'll handle the whole OAuth dance there that goes back and forth for the for you, right? So you don't have to do it. So we're trying to really simplify that process. It does lead to another challenge, though, that how do you get 10,000 financial institutions open banking APIs and an OAuth endpoint stood up? And so we, we're definitely looking at that problem. But we do have a, not to pitch a product here, but there's a product we have called the Open Banking Portal, which we've been developing. It is, the source is open, but it's not open to the public. It's, uh, it's just an open license right now that a financial institution can take that. They can host it on their servers and it has all of the user experiences, all of the OAuth authentication flows, 
administration portal, client portal, like the whole the whole thing baked in, because that API and that 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 basically that API is going needs to be the same for everybody, and so that's why we've developed that. Actually, in the spirit of PPP, what we did with building the PPP uh, portal that we did and, and open sourcing it to our clients, we're doing the similar thing with the open banking portal to make that available, and then for financial institutions that don't want to host it themselves and manage it, then we're, we'll provide a managed service for the, the portal. But for the technical side, hopefully that got to the answer to your question. Like, yes, they are going to have to have an authentication endpoint. Yeah. He sent me a follow-up and he says, how can I convince my credit union to use MX? <laughs> have him call me. <laughs> okay. We'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. So let's move to Alok. Do you want to introduce yourself and ask your question? Yeah, sure. Hi, Brett, and, and everyone on the call. This is Alok Jaliwala here. I work as a senior product manager at a fintech called Upgrade, started by former Lending Club founders. So we are in the neo banking space, and I, I the question I have is there are at least the three prominent players in, in the market is Plaid, uh, Finicity, and MX that I know of. How different are you from, from Plaid? in terms of the coverage, because I think the main differentiation I, I have observed between Finicity, Plaid, and MX is the coverage one. And the other thing, which is a little bit interesting in our our domain of lending is, is your MX aggregation API FCRA compliant for lending for lending use cases? Yeah, great question. A lot, lot of information there. So you know, when you come in, look at the differentiation between us and, and the competition, I, I, when it comes to coverage, our emphasis is on open banking. And, and you'll see that we've signed and implemented and gone live with more open banking connections than any other aggregator in the marketplace. And that as we partner with, we, we've received this feedback from all of the top institutions, you know, Chase, Wells Fargo, B of A, you know, go on down the list, that the speed at which we are rolling out the open banking connections and making those available to the consumers and then converting traffic over to those is unlike what anybody else is uh, else is doing. And, and really, we're pushing on that where the, you know, we still see that the, the primary mechanism for much of the competition is the credential based, or, you know, credential sharing and screen scraping. And so while that's definitely like a part of the ecosystem, we're, we're trying to push as fast as we can on these open banking connections. So that's really where you're going to see us shine in open banking and then also in high performance instant account verification. So if you're just wanting to get the account number and the routing number to move money, you are going to see us do really, really well there. When it comes to the API being used for FICRA, that we do have uh, a number of companies that are using our API to come up with an alternative lending score and alternative lending criteria. I'd have to ask our marketing team if I can even share who, which the companies are, but some of them we can, some of them we can't. And so I'm going to hold from saying names just so I don't get in trouble, but I can tell you there are a number of com companies that are using the API for lending use cases and using that data to come up with, income verification, work verification, cash flow analysis, et cetera. And uh, if you come to the Money Experience Summit, I'm going to put a plug in here again for that. You're going to see more about that. I can't announce it on this call yet, but you're going to see more uh, from us in that area. So that will be great. I mean, 
just a follow up like i mean i will get in touch with you for further conversations for upgrade so i may connect you or i, I can take it take some contact details from ambika thanks perfect thank you thanks alok kelly hi do you want to introduce yourself and ask your question uh sure hi as you see my name is kelly my question is are you guys planning to expand to the caribbean and the main reason why i asked this question because i reached out to your company before i come to realization that none of the companies you or other competitors plaid finicity no one is available in the caribbean for open banking so that's kind of where i'm kind of curious if you guys are planning to ex- yeah it's 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 a great question so part of you know i referred to our series c earlier and part of that is is looking how we can expand i'll tell you last last winter i had the opportunity to move down to puerto rico for a little bit of time and enjoyed some some time down there and and got to know the banking system and how how it works you know at least down there and definitely see that there there's needs and so if there's anything that i have to do with it i i would love to be down there in all of the caribbean islands and i i think it's really really important part of what we start to look into is like how can we work with the financial institutions down there how do the banking systems work etc and so there's nothing that i can announce right now about that but expansion into other parts of the world is definitely on our our radar and and we're looking into what that looks like and the most effective way to do that and yeah that's about what i can say on the expansion thank you i appreciate it but it's really well well needed and when i say well i'm emphasizing that it's well needed there so thank you Thank you, Kelly. Okay, hi Rahul. I think he, this is quite early for you, so thank you for joining. Hi, Do you want to yes, introduce yes. yourself and ask your? I, yeah, hi Ambika. How are you? I could not stop myself. I saw a notification that around open banking, and you know, it's it's a start of a day for me here in India. So, hi guys. Uh, hi Brett. I am from India. I am a banker in India. I work with a lot of companies, fintech companies. in india and i have been tracking fintech movements in india and it's good to you know listen to you and my question is what do you think that how it is going to impact banks all across the world this open banking initiatives and do you think they will become more efficient or they they will you know lose the business going forward what is your view on that how do you see the future coming up in next 3 years or 5 years Yes, that is a very hot topic, right? Everybody wants to know like what what's going to happen with this. And I I think back to you know, just historically when when something new, there's some new innovation, there's the tendency to to have fear, like what's what's going to happen to our existing our existing business and what's going to happen to the marketplace. And really like what I've seen is is and when what I think is going to happen is a whole new era of innovation. when we when we open up the data and we start sharing the data there there does it does drive some more competition and and that's what the the Biden administration their their announcement and their push really hit on on competition but i think what you'll start to see is a lot of innovation and hopefully we see a lot of innovation from the the financial institutions and what our our point of view this this does differ from our our competitors but we're we're really pushing to how how can we bring together financial institutions and fintechs because there's a lot of fintech companies that we work with that what they need they, they want to get their products into the financial institution they they want to use the banking backbone 
and the customers to work together in the spirit of partnership. Now, of course, there are the groups that are um, trying to uh, disrupt and they're trying to compete, et cetera. But in my, like what, what I see from day to day is a lot more of the fintechs are actually looking for cooperation and, and working together and not competing as, as much. So that's, that's just what I see there. What I think can, uh, a couple opportunities that there are for financial institutions, um, money movement is a big, is a hot topic. There's a lot of payment companies that are, are, popping up and banks have the ability to move money. They're, they're chartered. They have the license. They can, they can, they can move the money. And one of the main use cases that you see in open banking is getting the account number and the routing number for the purpose of moving money. So oftentimes they'll grab that data, then they'll go to another provider and move the money. I would love to see, and I think it was, as in the benefit of the bank, instead of paying a third party to move the money, just open up the money movement API in your open banking API and let the customers come to you. And instead of people pulling money out of your institution, you're pushing it and then you're charging for that endpoint. Sometimes the financial institutions aren't thinking of open banking as a, uh, a source of revenue, but I, I think there's definitely revenue generating opportunities with open banking. It's just starting to see like, why do people want that data and how are they using it? And then, offering up services to those those users. So overall, I think it's going to be healthy for competition, healthy for innovation. And I, I think if the banks will innovate, there are some really cool things that the banks can do, that the financial institutions can do, that the fintechs won't be able to do. Great, Brett. There is one uh, you know observation I, I saw in, at least in India, that Indi- uh, Indian banks and financial institutions, because of legacy systems they have and kind of lack of culture to develop new things and create new things now they have started uh, taking it differently they have started you know putting some bet with fintech companies and taking equity with them so that they will be near to innovation and they can onboard the fintech that way so this is how they are countering it right now and i'm a part of it so we are assessing few fintechs that why not also anyhow we back them why not we should have equity in them so that's yeah, a kind I, of one counter we are observing i don't know about us and other geographies but india it is yes it is popping up yeah we, we see the same pattern actually where a lot of the financial institutions are built on legacy systems those could be core systems a lot of legacy architecture and they just can't innovate fast enough and that's where that partnership with the fintech companies that are, are somewhat unbound from those things. And if we can put an abstraction over the data, like an open banking API, share it. But then actually, like I mentioned, a lot of those fintechs, and just like what you're saying, want to come back and provide solutions to to the bank that they can give to their consumers. And so I definitely think that there's a lot of partnership opportunities that you're going to see and, and lots of innovation, you know, and that that leads to acquisition opportunities as well. And, and that continues to just acquisitions fuel another layer of, you know, next generation of innovation. Great, great. Great. Thank you, Rahul. I think Jennifer, Jen also has something to say along the same lines. Jen, do you want to make your statement too? 
Yeah. Hey, I was just, this is Jen Miller. I work um, in partnership at one of the top five banks and I, Brett, just have really enjoyed the conversation here. And I just have to say that I, I have a lot of heart for what you're saying and I'm seeing exactly what you're indicating already start to play out where fintech and bank is starting to work better. I think, you know, my team and I spend, you know, probably 10 to 20 hours a week on on phone calls with fintechs thinking about things exactly like this, right? So I think there is a beautiful marriage that could happen between the big banks and the fintech community to really create experiences that um, are optimal for our customers. So really, really love what you have to say and love your product. Big heart for what you got going on. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jen. And Poonam, over to you for the last question. Hey, Brad, this is Poonam, and I'm a developer working on the open source uh, Broad tools and technologies. So my question is like, as some as you mentioned, like you guys have like open banking APIs and that's being exposed. And if the customer would like to use it, they should reach out to you guys. But I'm wondering, like, any are there any plans you're going to make them as available on the public portal, or do you, or the second question in line with this, like, do you guys contribute any? Do you guys have any open source project where the other team, other fintech companies can contribute to that? Because it's a very big, it's a good solution and anyone can contribute. And it's one of the way we can build the fintech community bigger. Absolutely. So I'll I'll tell you at our core, we are huge believers in open source software. And if, if it wasn't for the open source community and what the open source community does, we we couldn't do what we do, and I don't think the the level of innovation that exists in the world today would be made possible. You know, we look at open source operating systems and open source databases and open source programming languages and frameworks and libraries and on and on and on, and it just continues to build this stack of tools that are made available to developers so that they, they they're not that they can innovate faster, really. I mean, we're not dealing with machine code anymore. We're like way, way, way up the stack here and we can develop really cool things. If you go to github.com forward slash MX enabled, it has a list of all of our open source projects. You'll see on there 71 different repositories for open source software. And go through that. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things from... Uh, user interface type of things to more deeper, like asynchronous message queues and, and plugins for RabbitMQ and performance enhancements are, uh, there, there's so many things our library of react components are on there. There's, there's so many things that you can get. So go, go check that out. You can see that if you are um, interested in the open banking portal, just contact us directly. Um, you can email. I don't know if we, we could send out like notes or something, but you could email me directly. I'm happy to, direct you there. We haven't published that on the open internet yet on a one-on-one call. We could, we could dive into why it's just, it's just not quite ready. And there's some legal things there and some security things there. So we are keeping it more restricted. So we know who exactly is accessing it, but we're happy to work with you on that. So, but another big shout out to the open source community and what everybody's doing. Great. Thank you. We are over time, but Brett, I want to give you uh, any closing remarks. I want to give you the chance to make any closing remarks before we close out for the session. I, you know, just want to say thank you. Thank you for the group for attending. Fantastic comments. I was, I was very curious how the Q&A session was going to go. So it went very, very well. This is, this is a great event. I hope if there's a reason you can have me on again, I'd love to join you again. If you can make it to the Money Experience Summit, we'd love to see you there. I'd love to meet you 
uh, all of you in person. So go check out mx.com forward slash summit. Use that code clubhouse 100, I believe it is. And uh, hopefully I get to meet all of you in person. And you should also make your plug about hiring because I'm getting some things about are they open to remote? (laughs) So are you hiring and are you open to remote? We are open to remote and we are definitely hiring. I think, I don't know, we're hired to, I think we're slated to hire another 200 people this year. So, you know, check out our website. I think all the job postings are on the website. If you go on there and there's not something today that, that fits your thing, check back tomorrow or the next week because there's always new postings going on all the time. But, and we're hiring all across the board, product, engineering, you know, customer service, support, integrations. I mean, you, you name it, we're hiring for it. So, so check out our website, mx.com. I, there's a career section on there somewhere uh, you can find. So thanks on the cut for reminding me of that. That, that is big. <laughs> sure, lovely. Well, thank you again. I want to remind the audience, actually, I reached out to uh, Brett only on Friday, for late Friday afternoon, and I asked him if he will come join our show. And he very graciously agreed Megan, who's in the audience, she made it all happen, and also Tom Cook. So thank you guys. Thank you, the team of MX, for making this happen. This was a great call. So thank you so much. And again, if you like to follow anyone, um, the way how Clubhouse works is if you want to be notified that Brett is speaking again, you'll have to follow him. So anybody on the stage, if you liked what they talked about, you can follow them. And if you liked the program that we put together, you can follow the club, which is FinTech and Payment. So if you click at the green house icon, that will take you to the club page and then you can follow that. And that way you'll get notification anytime there are new programs being curated. So with that, that's the end. Monisha, any uh, closing remarks from you? No, thank you for this wonderful session. We have a few aphorisms to go with. So thanks, Brad, for inspiring all of us. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.